This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. I want to take a moment to say I hope you are safe and healthy. Thank you for tuning in to this hour of togetherness, where we discuss what unites rather than divides us. Coming up, an interview with Peter Guy, author of Northernmost. I wanted the freedom and the challenge to write different kinds of books for, you know, to to capture the generations. I didn't want to be beholden to one type of storytelling or one type of story. We'll be back with Peter Guy in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. For the last seven years, I've been producing at least 40 episodes a year of First Draft. It's a labor of love, but there is also labor involved, time and effort and thought. Whether this is your first listening experience or you are on your 300th episode, I am asking you with humbleness and appreciation if you would consider supporting First Draft as a donating member. You can learn more and donate at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Your support helps keep conversations like the one you are about to hear going. As our society is changing to independent folks like me producing rich and meaningful content, like that on First Draft, we are simultaneously expanding the diversity of voices available for the public. This effort takes money, time, equipment, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. I know there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense to make. As a thank you for joining the First Draft community, I offer my patrons a lot of extras, the best being ad-free and pitch-free episodes. As a thank you for your patronage, I get you to the interview faster because you'll get your own dedicated feed without this ask. No please, no ads. Also, starting at just $6 a month, you will receive extras from the shows, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final episode, writing tips from featured authors, books, and a monthly newsletter. I am also very grateful. I often send extra goodies to my patrons. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this pitch seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate any amount, and you know it will go to the continuation of these conversations focused on literary craft, content, and practice. I know that it's unlikely you are in front of a computer right now, so I'd like to suggest adding a little reminder for yourself for when you get home to contribute to First Draft. Maybe make a note on your phone, an ink mark on your hand, scribble on a piece of paper, something along the lines of first draft, reminder, membership matters. Again, patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is Peter Guy, author of four novels, including Safe from the Sea, The Lighthouse Road, Wintering, which won the Minnesota Book Award, and Northernmost. Guy received his MFA from the University of New Orleans and his PhD from Western Michigan University. He currently teaches the year-long novel writing project at the Loft Literary Center. 
He was born and raised in Minnesota, where he still lives. Guy's newest novel, Northernmost, focuses on several generations of the same family. In one narrative thread, the novel turns its focus on Ode Ide, who survives a near-death experience while hunting seals in 1897 Norway. More than a century later, Ide's great-great-great-granddaughter, Greta Nansen, is in an unfulfilling marriage in Minnesota and impulsively travels to Norway to learn more about her family history. As the novel weaves back and forth between the two generations, heartbreaks are revealed that tie Ode and Greta together, even though they are separated by more than 100 years. In the front of the book, Guy includes a family tree with seven generations of the Ide family. We began the discussion with Peter Guy sharing that he's written about this family in his previous books and why he focused on the first and last generations in this family tree. Partly it was by necessity, right? Like the Lighthouse Road deals with um, Thea, who is Ode's daughter, and her son, a character named Harry. I might have to consult my own tree, family tree here to, to keep all this straight. Um, and the next book dealt with Harry and his son, Gus. And Greta is in that book as well, um, but only as a minor character. And so the two generations really that I had left to deal with were the first and the last, although it's not quite the last because Greta also has a daughter who I think is pretty important in in Northernmost. Um, But it's no accident that I was working toward that. I knew that I wanted the last book. And so the first book that deals with this family is The Lighthouse Road. Then there's a book called Wintering that um, deals with those middle generations. And now there's Northernmost. And it, it, uh, uh, I guess in a certain sense, it's a trilogy, but I think of it more like a family saga told over three books. I mean, each of the books stands on its own. Uh, certainly you learn more about the stories, the fullness of the stories if you read previous books, but the books are definitely meant to stand on their own. And I knew that I wanted the last book to be a sort of um, looking forward and looking back at the same time, which for for the purposes of, of the novel, it's Ode looking forward and it's Greta looking back. And so that their gaze would sort of meet in the middle of the of the generations, not not literally, but figuratively. And I wanted the challenge to tell a story that could um, operate on two vastly different timelines and in two vastly different worlds, even as they sort of collide and and, um, make meaning off of each other. They're very different stories, um, even as they share similarities. And And I wanted that challenge. When I, you know, when I realized back in 2010 that I was going to have this you know, this many generation family, I, I spent time thinking, oh, I could just write this whole story out. Like I could spend the next five years writing a thousand page novel that would encompass this whole family. Um, and the reason that I didn't do that was for one, I don't think many people are interested in reading thousand page books, but I also wanted the freedom and the challenge to write different kinds of books for you know, to, to capture the generations. I didn't want to be beholden to one type of storytelling or one type of story over the course of all those pages. Um, and I did, but I did know that I wanted the last book to be this sort of uh, bookend, if you will, of, of the family. Um, and so that, I mean, that's, 
you know, that's that idea has been there from the start in terms of their occupations and the specific uh, incidents that I chronicle in this story. Much of that is new. I mean, by far, most of it is new. Um, that is to say that I thought of it only in the writing of the book. I knew the general I knew their names. I knew where they were from. I knew a couple of things about them um, back in 2010. But the pro the project of writing their stories was a, you know, was one that I've worked on over the last three or four years. So you begin the book with an epigraph that says, "Oh, that burning longing, day and night were happiness," by Friedrich Nansen, far <laughs> farthest north. Did I say his yep. name right? Well, you said it as well as I can say it. I'll tell you that much. I think it's Fikjof Nansen, um, who was one of the great um, pol Norwegian polar explorers. Yes. Well, one of the things that, that struck me about your epigraph and in the book was the sense of longing and how much longing these characters had. And we can get into their, their actual circumstances. You know, Odes was that he ended up getting stuck in what is now known as Svalbard on the ice for two weeks alone, trying to survive. And Greta is trying to get out of a marriage that isn't fulfilling to her and and falls in love with someone else and, and is longing for a different life. And, and Ode is longing for something, uh, you know, for salvation from, from, the, from the ice. And I'm just wondering about the concept of longing. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mentioned earlier that um, I, I, I sort of wanted the freedom to write different kinds of books. And one of the things that I mean by that is that there were certain ideas that I wanted to write toward in, in each of the books. In Wintering, for example, I was really intent on writing a sort of... Um, you know, a, a cerebral adventure story, a, a, an adventure story with consequences and not just the consequences of the adventure itself, but the sort of familial fallout from the adventure and the, and the long tentacles of, of, of dramatic events and life-changing, family-changing events. And so that was something that I was constantly working toward, that the notion that there there should be lots of things happening, but that it should be thoughtful and that it should be uh, that there that those two things should constantly be working together. With Northernmost, I I wanted to write a book about longing, and and it was literally that word that hung above my desk, and and Nansen's words hung above my desk while I was writing the book, and I'm not sure why that is. Uh, certainly. I think it's an important part of our life, uh, everyone's lives. And if you're lucky to be happy and satisfied in your life, you probably have less longing than others. But actually, probably you just have a different kind of longing than others. I was interested in the kind of longing that um, is rooted in, in unhappiness and in sadness and in loneliness. And, and Nansen... Um, if, I mean, I read Farthest North many, many years ago before I ever even had any intention of writing about him. And I read it again as I was researching this book. And time and time again, it's the story of um, his first voyage in the, in, a, in the famed polar ship Fram. And his notion was, um, at, he had in, in the, I think it was in the 18, late 1880s, 
he had skied across Greenland. He and a he and a and a group of fellow travelers had had skied across Greenland. It was this great expedition and met, you know, afforded him all sorts of fame and renown. And one of the things that happened is when he finished that uh, trip, he was standing on the shore of Greenland and up washes uh, some wreckage from a boat that he knows uh, was wrecked somewhere north of Russia. And he understands that this means that the ice that wrecked that boat and the wreckage that resulted from that ice has come all the way across the Arctic Ocean. And his notion, so, and, and over such, an, such a period of time, I don't remember how long it was, but he gets into his mind that he's going to sail a ship, a specially made ship, and, and go across uh, northern Russia, sail across northern Russia from the, from the farthest north point of Norway, and get set in the ice, and that the ice would just flow up over the North Pole, and that's how he's going to reach the North Pole. And it's this idea, partly the audacity of it, and partly the just the beauty of it and the intelligence of it, I was just fascinated by. But all throughout his, his um, it was a journey, I might add, that was ultimately not successful. It, was, it did allow him to get farther north than any person had ever been, um, but it was, he did not reach the North Pole. But the, the whole book, Farthest North, is this, you can read, if you read between the lines, you know, there's plenty of hijinks and, and talk about the crew and the adventures that they have and the misadventures that they have and their equipment. But there's also this longing, this longing for something that he can't explain. And probably being that he was a man of a certain uh, era, wouldn't have bothered trying to understand but he's lonely and you can just read it in his, in his writing. And it's really quite beautiful. And that idea was haunting to me. And it really uh, sort of just, you know, infected my thinking about the book. Infected is a terrible choice of words right now, but it really influenced my thinking about the book and what would motivate and what would inspire these characters that I was creating. And so, and so that's why that, I mean, that's where that notion came from. Um, the, 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 there, there were a lot of very happy coincidences in terms of timing, in terms of what happened in the actual story of Nansen's expedition, but also in the fictional story of my family. And there were a lot of dates that overlapped and, and places that overlapped. And all of that was coincidental and beautiful. But it really seemed like sort of just a phenomenal invitation to write about this even if just briefly to write about this guy and this, this, the, the sort of the polar spirit that at the time was, I mean, he was world famous. He was one of the most famous people in the world. So you constructed these two narratives and you go back and forth between different chapters of time and character. So one is Ode's journey, which is he was born in 1854. So um, we're in the late 1800s. And he is a fisherman and he's kind of down on his luck. He doesn't have a lot of money. He's in a, in a happy marriage, but his daughter Thea left for America and he and his wife Inger haven't heard from her in a while and they just don't have money. And he gets offered this chance to go on this craft much further north than where they are to go collect seal pelts. And it's a lot of money. So he decides to 
do that, and he ends up getting stuck on the ice because his partner got killed by a polar bear, and he is out there kind of surviving, and he, he does survive and comes back and tells a journalist his story. And then on the other other side of things, we're pretty much in modern day, and we have Greta, his descendant, who is a writer, and she's really not that happy in in her her marriage at the moment, and she needs to get out. She has two kids, but she doesn't really see a way through, and her husband is of Norwegian origin, and she ends up going to Norway to follow him, she thinks, to try to figure out either either at that moment maybe to just break things off or have one last hope, and she ends up getting sidelined back to the town where her her relatives are from and she meets a man and falls in love with him there and it's the town where Ode was from and so you have these two stories going on at the same time and that you go back and forth between the two and so I wanted to ask you a little bit about the construction and how how you did that and then if you were thinking about parallels between these stories within themselves because I saw some yeah well, for sure I was. Um, I mean, it would have been foolish to think I could write <laughs> stories set so far apart and not have parallels or not have points of commonality beyond there being, um, you know, different generations of the same family. But I will say also that, um, and and I'm not exactly sure how this happens, but it seems to happen in fiction, uh, that there were a lot of things that happened accidentally. A lot of... Um, sort of images and transitions from one storyline to the next and metaphors, the sort of prevailing metaphors, a lot of those things, maybe to say accidentally is to say it wrong, sort of subconsciously maybe is a better way of saying it, that they happened subconsciously. And um, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll say freely that when I started writing the novel, I knew the general trajectory of each of their stories. And I knew several of the scenes that were going to happen. And I knew about the journalist and that he was going to be telling a story. But I, but beyond that, I didn't have all the, the, the connective tissue wasn't all there. And, and, and so part of that was uh, a, a, you know, a process of discovery, the, the way that those things ultimately come together and hopefully work. Uh, and I, and I, you know, I mean, novelists, I don't know about other novelists, certainly I am always, I always try to leave room for those discoveries. Like planning is important, of course. Um, thinking about the story and the characters and their trajectories is important, of course. But for me, the fun is in the discovery or much of the fun is in the discovery. And so I always try to leave room for that. Um, I'm, I, I feel lucky that the that the stories sort of come together in the way that they do in this novel. It it um, for me it was a happy surprise, and I think that uh, I mean I think that I, I don't know how to describe it exactly, but it's partly just luck that that they're that these lives intersected in the way that they did. I mentioned earlier that there were some happy coincidences about when Nansen, um, you know, was, was making his return from this voyage. And what happened is that he ended up, um, he actually ended up in the town of Hammerfest, which is the town that Greta returns to, the town that Odiner is from. 
And in my notes for the Lighthouse Road, the date that he arrives is exactly two years to the day. It's August 26th, I think, um, that Thea left Norway. And it just seems so, so strange that that would be true and such a good indication that these stories were meant to be told together. That, that in fact, in, in true history, Nansen was in Hammerfest on the day that Odiner encounters um, another man from the from the Fram, a, a, a sort of an equally famous explorer named Otto Sverjup, who is the one who offers him employment to go up to to Spitsbergen to 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 hunt seals. One of the things I thought about a lot in, in terms of the parallels, but in the ways that they might have linked in my mind, I was thinking about. And I don't even know if this is a real concept, but this is what I term it, um, intergenerational loneliness and and the salvation or respite from that, which is kind of, to me, similar to narratives and stories. And and what mm-hmm. I mean is, is, you know, Greta was, you know, Ode's character could not have missed and thought about Greta because she was so many generations past, you know, he could think about Thea. But for her she found so much solace and so much explanation for her own life now by searching back into her DNA. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, certainly that's true. And I think that part of what she discovers there, or what she at least believes she discovers or imagines is maybe the best word for it, is that these people, her people, her her ancestors, and she knows about some of them, right? I mean, she has her own parents and grandparents and great-grandparents, and there's a certain lore with this family, even within itself, right? Like the stories that this family has lived in the Lighthouse Road and in Wintering are the sort of stories that will get told from generation to generation. In fact, she even comments on that in a conversation she has with her father, Greta does. Um, but she she's looking back because she's looking for meaning. She's looking, it's almost like she's looking for counsel or guidance or something like that. And so her um, communing with Ode and imagining his life and doing more than that, in fact, her writing his life is in a lot of ways uh, an attempt not only to connect with that past, but to make sense of her own life now and the twists that her family's live lives have taken over the generations. Um, and, and I think that, I mean, I think that partly that's part of what I, you know, when I first started talking tonight about my, you know, sort of tracing the same steps that my mother must have taken. I think that that's what I'm talking about is, 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 is that long backward view in hopes of understanding just what in the world we're doing here now. And it's not, it's not a profound question, um, but it can affect one profoundly if they have the right imagination for it. And I, and I feel like um, certainly I've, 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 I've got a lively imagination for it. If not, you know, if not, uh, if not a good one. With, with the time element I notice a lot within within your chapters, you go back and forth 
in the character's mind or in the narrator's mind, depending on which point of view you were in, where maybe in one on one moment they're in a room and, and they're in a hotel, but then they're thinking back to a conversation they had earlier and then they go back and forth and, and there's all kind of, they're linked um, to each other. And I'm just wondering how you as a writer in the craft, like modulate time. Well, it, it's different all the time. I'll say that for sure. And I would say that in this novel, I mean, one it's not an accident that that's true. That was a, a storytelling strategy for better or worse that I decided to employ and was very conscious about employing. In fact, it became, to my way of thinking, one of the important meaning makers in the story. Um, so, so it's not accidental that it's there. But I tried to be very organic about it. And when I just when I when I was thinking about it, and thinking, oh, how could I do this? How could I go back and forth? Even as I'm going back and forth, in stories that are true in history, or just fictionally true for this family, or what have you. And one of the things, if I decide that I'm going to do something like this, I have to convince myself that it's a good idea. And, and I sort of have a I mean, I don't sort of, I literally have a conversation with myself where I'll write questions down and I'll answer them. And the question might be something like, well, why is it important that you tell the story this way? It's, it's, a, it's a similar um, to what I might ask a student if I were reading their story and their story was nonlinear in this way. I'd say, well, why is that important to you? And my own answer to that question uh, is that this is how we live our lives, right? Like, we wake up now more than ever, and the first thing that we do is we check the news and we reflect back on yesterday and we look forward to two weeks from now and, and two months from now and two years from now and what's that going to look like and how is that going to be different than life was two months ago or two years ago and how, you know, of course those thoughts are more pronounced now because we're in the middle of all of this coronavirus business, but it's how we live life all the time. When we are looking forward to, uh, you know, our, our my son's birthday is coming up in just a, a couple of weeks, and I was just looking forward to it, talking with him today about his birthday and what he wants to do and how it's a bummer that we can't have a regular birthday party, and he really wanted to go to this Italian restaurant that he hasn't been to, but that I keep telling him is so great, and he's been looking forward to it forever. And in that conversation, which is life. It's he and I looking forward. It's talking about birthdays in the past. It's talking about my birthday that's coming up just a few weeks after his and, and him asking me questions about my birthday when I was a kid, my, you know, the kinds of birthday parties that I had when I was a kid. And we're just, you know, we're not conscious about the way that we're communicating, but we're not, we didn't start the conversation with it's 12.01 p.m., let's have lunch, then we'll talk about your birthday, and then we'll talk about what we can't have for your birthday. We're just having that conversation that goes all across time, and it's just, it's like you said, circling back and circling around, and that's how life goes. And I wanted to try to capture some semblance of that in the story. So when a character is either telling a story or recalling a memory or anticipating something, they're also doing whatever the sort of opposite is. So if they're looking forward to something, they're just as quick to think back to something uh, in memory or in, in history. Or if they're living very much in the moment now, they have to anticipate or remember something that might affect it. 
And so that's that's sort of how that worked. And and I realized, listen, like it won't be for everyone. It's a lot of you have to pay attention and um, and it's not always easy to follow. I mean, I was as careful about it as I could be. Um, but I thought that it was really important that that because so much of the story, the novel is about those stories, the stories that we are living and have lived and want to live, that all of those elements be in play at the same time. You know, a lot of times memories can also bring you solace. So we have Ode, who's stuck on the ice, and that is a portion of the book, is we see him, we see how he survives, we see what he does to survive on the ice with basically nothing. You know, he has like one or two bullets left, and that's it. And he he does think back a lot to his family, but he also has a great realization on the ice about his life and his place in the universe. And I'm just wondering if you want to talk about that or if it's too much to give away. Well, I mean, I guess I I wouldn't want to describe specifically what happens. I would say generally though, about his time on the ice. And I, um, I don't know, this is probably saying too much, but I felt in my own life an awful lot. Like I imagine Ode must have felt alone on the ice while I was writing those scenes, which which is to say that I went through a pretty terrific upheaval in my own personal life while I was writing this book and, um, and sort of knew that I was going to even, uh, you know, as I have, I, I, I wrote the first 50 or a hundred pages of it a, a year before our, before this upheaval came. And I knew that this upheaval was coming in my own life. Um, I don't mean to be mysterious. I got divorced in the middle of writing this book. And so I spent a lot of time thinking about what was important and in my, in my own, what would be important in a character's life and sort of versus what was important to me. And one of the things that I took a lot of solace in were my beautiful children. I mean, perhaps naturally, but I really thought about how um, unsullied and uncomplicated my love for my children is and how much that love guided me through what was otherwise a really troubling time. Now for old, there are other Uh, there are other things on his mind. One of them is his own religious faith, not something that I've dealt with myself. Um, I mean, I'm not a religious man and I haven't been since I was, you know, a kid basically. Um, But no man from Norway or virtually no man from Norway at that time would have not been a religious man. And so his religious reckoning goes hand in hand with the the other reckonings that he that he faces down out there, um, including his love of his wife and and his love of his of his daughter. And we talked about you and I did um, just a, a few minutes ago about longing, and his longing for his wife while he's surviving this ordeal, and his longing for and memory of his daughter. He doesn't know what's happened to his daughter. Um, he chooses to believe that she's alive and well and thriving in America where she's, you know, where she's been for a couple of years. Um, those, that kind of, that kind of longing and that kind of 
hope were frankly really um, important to me in my own personal life while I was writing those sections of the book. Um, those, you know, writing those scenes and there, you know, there are six or seven or eight of them were some of the best therapy that I had while I was going through what I was going through. Um, and so, so I don't know if that's exactly the answer to the question or not, but. Well, I think it's, I think it does speak to the deep act of empathy and imagining that you can do for a character. I mean, you have never, as far as we know, maybe you were, a, 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 a man stuck on the ice in the 1800s in Norway, but your ability to go there it speaks to the symbolic nature and, uh, you know, how deep you can go in your imagination and how much you embody another imagination or another human when you write. Yeah. Well, and then I've always said, and I believe, I mean, I believe this more and more, you know, the, the longer I write, the more I write that I am happiest and, um, and doing my best work, frankly, the farthest removed I am from my own experience. So you said, like, as far as we know, you have never been a person like, oh, well, uh, naturally I have not. Um, I mean, I, the, the, the circumstances of their existence are always hopefully just as far from mine as they can be. Thea, for example. I mean, I was also never a 16-year-old Norwegian woman um, immigrating to the United States, right? In 1896, I've never been that person. But um, but the pleasure in conjuring up a life based on that experience is the pleasure of writing. Uh, I guess I guess Greta is a little bit different. Um, Greta is a a woman who very much resembles me, except that I'm a except that I'm a man. Yeah, and I think also on the flip side of that, sort of the the freedom of the imagination that you could take these characters any way they want, something that struck me about this book, uh, um, a little bit with Greta, but she definitely had a lot more freedom than Ode and Inger did. But she basically, Inger basically says to um, Ode, I think it's um, before he goes on his trip no it's when he came back from the ice and they were going to he was going to a bigger city to talk to a journalist about it and she was basically saying mm -hmm. like who are we beholden to you know first you do this then you do that and and we don't have any control over our destiny you know who controls our destiny and i'm wondering if you were thinking about that in like in a philosophical way S certainly and 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 uh, more than in a philosophical way i mean one of the other things we touched on as well were making those connections that the sort of i thought of I, I tend to think of it as like the tissue that holds these two stories together and the fact that they are uh sort of in desperate i mean not sort of they are in desperate financial straits greta is the opposite of that i mean she's not you know she doesn't have unlimited wealth but she's she's solidly middle class and comfortable and able to jump on a flight to go to Norway and then divert from Oslo to her, her hometown on a whim, right? Like, can you imagine, like, Ode can't afford a loaf of bread when he gets home from Spitsbergen. And so those, there's, there's a very um, intentional contrast there. I mean, I'm choosing my words carefully because 
it's not all artifice. I mean, some of that just happens naturally, like Car- Greta's character, that is just a difference. But but as soon as I recognize that difference, I attempt to draw attention to it and attempt to use it as a means of demonstrating how on the one hand, unlike the, each other, these two characters and these two circumstances are, even as I simultaneously attempt to draw similarities between them, if that makes sense. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yes. I'm going to read the first page from Louise Erdrich's The Plague of Doves, which, um, gosh, what year was this? It must have been 2008. So this book is more than 10 years old. It seems like just five minutes ago that I read it for the first time, but it's it's a sort of prologue itself, and it's called Solo. The gun jammed on the last shot, and the baby stood holding the crib rail, eyes wild, bawling. The man sat down in an upholstered chair and began taking his gun apart to see why it wouldn't fire. The baby's crying set him on edge. He put down the gun and looked around for a hammer, but saw the gramophone. He walked over to it. There was already a record on the spindle, so he cranked the mechanism and set down the needle. He sat back down in the chair and picked up his work as the music flowed into the room. The baby quieted. An unearthly violin solo in the middle of the record made the man stop, the pieces of the gun in his hands. He got up when the music was finished and cranked the gramophone and put the recording back on. This happened three times. The baby fell asleep. The man repaired the gun so the bullet slid nicely into its chamber. He tried it several times, then rose and stood over the crib. The violin reached a crescendo of strange sweetness. He raised the gun. The odor of raw blood was all around him in the closed room. Do you want to tell me a little bit about why you chose that? Well, I I use that that excerpt as an example in fiction writing classes that I teach often because I think, um, aside from announcing what is, I think, one of the most brilliant books by probably our most brilliant writer, it's a masterclass in, in scene setting and in, and staking a claim on all sorts of different tensions and on all sorts of strangenesses too. the, the unlikeliness of the gun and the gramophone and the wailing baby and the, the strange choice of the word nicely to describe how the bullet slides into the chamber and the smell of raw blood and the fact that we don't know, um, what whose raw blood is in the room and what that last bullet or, or who that last bullet is intended for. I mean, it, it could be a, a novel unto itself. And I think it's just it's just brilliant and, and beautiful. And, and she's a writer um, who from, gosh, uh, tracks must have and Love Medicine, those books must have come out in the late 80s or 1990 or 91 or 92 or something like that. So for 30 years, um, she's been writing these beautiful, painful, powerful, uh, dark, but also incredibly light and hopeful novels. And I just think there's no one else like her. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it changed a lot from the first draft or was tricky to write? Yes. Um, One of the things that I often um, struggle with 
Um, and this is true sort of on a daily basis. Uh, and I try to do as much as I can to prepare for it. But as I often think of how I'm going to enter my day's work, like what has to happen. And in this particular scene, which precedes Ode, um, going into dinner at his uh, soon-to-be benefactor and his employer's house, um, I just I spent a lot of time and, and probably wrote 20 versions of of this memory before he enters the dining room, and so I'll read it. Um, it's a scene that takes place in 1897, and he's recalling um, his time on on the ice in Spitsbergen. Even on the darkest nights, when the only proof I had against death was the wind and the distant booms of Calvin Glacier, when I stumbled on that gale-scoured scruff of land spongy beneath my feet where it wasn't strewn with rocks or snow, when all I had was the thought of my wife and daughter to keep me from abandoning myself to the icy seas, I would sometimes see before me, at a distance I could never quite fathom, a sudden blossoming of light. It rose from the ground all golden and soft as smoke and put before me someplace to go. It might linger for a second or a minute, and in this span I hurried as if in that light I might find the warmth I so desperately imagined. Of course, the light was only ever swallowed up, and the following darkness only ever more profound. And why did you choose that? Well, I chose it because I think, uh, I mean, it's so interesting to to be recalling our conversation just of the last hour um, and thinking about that. But he goes immediately from that thought into a dining room. So he goes from that memory into the dining room. And I mentioned before I read it that I'm always looking for ways to enter the scene that I'm working on. In that case, I was literally thinking about entering the dining room. And what would this man on the heels of what he has just been through and with all of the sort of unexpected attention he's suddenly getting, what would he be thinking about as he walked into that dining room for, for a meeting that he can't fathom? I mean, he's been woken from the sleep by his wife and told the dress that he's being his, his presence is requested in the dining room. And there are no doubt all sorts of things that someone might think of as they were entering a dining room like that. Um, but I wanted him to go back to the place that he just returned from, to have it not only fresh in his mind, um, but to sort of, and this is before the reader has much of a taste of it, um, that is a taste for his time on, on Spitsbergen. And I wrote it, I mean, I, I can remember morning after morning not, um, not, not feeling like it wasn't right, like I wasn't getting right what he would think going in there going into that dining room. And so, so, so it was not easy, but um, I'm, I'm happy with, with where it ended up. Where do you write? I write at the desk that I'm sitting at right now, which is um, in a sunroom on our house. Um, there are uh, seven windows all around me and French doors that go into the living room. I have a sitting desk that I'm sitting at now, and I also have a standing desk that I built that I sort of alternate between the two. And I try to work here as much as I can, uh, partly because it's just so comfortable and I've done done so much work here, but also um, because it's consistent and I find consistency good. But I will say that I can write anywhere at any time. I can write in hotel rooms, I can write on airplanes and in airports, I can write uh, in hotel rooms, um, in the grocery store and coffee shops, I can write just about anywhere. 
What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? These days I take my dog for a walk. Um, and I, I mean, I do that all the time, but uh, we've only had her for about a year. So it's, it's lovely to have that companion. And she often sits on the rug as she's sitting here now, um, sort of keep me company as I write. Um, so I do that. Um, I love to travel, of course. Um, and I especially love to spend time up on the North Shore of Lake Superior, which I write an awful lot about, but I spend more time up there getting away from writing than I do actually writing up there. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Well, my wife, Emily, um, always first. And then it depends. Um, I have a couple of friends that I've confided in over the years. One of them is a, a man named Matt Pott, who, uh, who's been a friend for many years and who offers just terrific counsel and very honest and but helpful critique. I'm friends with a writer named Chris Kander, who, who uh, wrote a book called The Weight of a Piano, uh, came out a couple of years ago, and she's also been really helpful in, in providing me feedback. Um, but but those sort of outside readers get fewer and fewer the longer I do this. And now I'm mostly interested in in what what uh, what what Emily thinks or what my agent thinks. How have you dealt with rejection? Well, certainly I've had my share of it. Um, and I don't exactly know how to describe dealing with it. I think that um, I didn't know that I had tough skin. But when I was trying to sell my first novel, it was rejected many, many, many times. I'm sure something like 20 or 30 times before a small um, small press named Unbridled Books bought it. Um, and I remember getting those rejections and feeling deflated but not um not like defeated um i just thought well if they're taking the time to read it and they're taking the time to write these notes then hopefully someone will like it enough to actually want to publish it and that proved to be the case um i just got a rejection today from a grant here in minnesota so it's the sort of thing that stays with you no matter how long you do it you're going to you're going to face rejection and it's just part of the part of the territory. I'm incredibly lucky to publish with what I think is the best publishing house in America, if not the world. And, um, and that goes a long way in, in uh, sort of easing the, easing the pain of the other rejections that come along in this life. And what is your favorite word? So funny, this question, because my kids ask me all the time and the word I tell them use on them most often is preposterous something they do or something they say is preposterous and I love that word but I think that my favorite word is either winter or snow and I can only um, guess as to why that's true but when I was thinking to the of the answer to this question those were the two words that kept popping into my mind and I love them both um, the season and the and the snow um, and that no doubt has something to do with it. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's such a nice conversation. Thanks, Mitzi. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Peter Guy, author of Northernmost. If you like today's show, check out my interview with Daniel Mason, author of the novel The Winter Soldier, about a medical student in World War I Europe. 
You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of more than 290 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.